uh, on the way out, I heard somebody said that all the, the ladies were really disturbed about guys coming in late. And I told Barbara, I says, I hope they don't let me take all the blame and say I kept them there that whole time. It was Alva's fault. <laughs> Because Brenda, she's in Kingston. So <laughs> have a good one. Uh, oh, but, behind you. <laughs> it, it was open discussion. Anybody, they could have so. If they said I spoke that long, they're wrong. <laughs> open discussion. Well, you got blamed for every bit of it. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> he said he's had six children. He knows what it is. Oh, man. I've heard that a few times. Like I've, I've had her go to sleep on the couch when I'm still up studying. Uh, let me mention first, uh, this book I alluded to uh, one time earlier by Jimmy Allen called Rebaptism. Uh, you might be interested in reading it. I thought it was very interesting. It has a lot of very good quotes from some of the men that were involved in the Reformation, like David Lipscomb, James Harding, N.B. Harding, uh, the Campbells, Thomas and Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone. If you're not already familiar with what these people taught on some of these subjects and what the Restoration Movement was really about, it may, it may be interesting to you to, to find out that uh, uh, those people believed and taught in a way that that, that may be quite different uh, than would be accepted in traditional churches of Christ and all today. Uh, Jimmy Allen, of course, is a professor at Harding. Uh, he states in this that um, he had debated for years about writing this and was persuaded not to. And finally, now uh, about 59 years of age, uh, close to retiring, uh, his own conscience motivated him and, and sold the book. But it's, uh, it's very good. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Romans, the ninth chapter. And we're, uh, let's see, I'm, we'll go with what we can in the amount of uh, uh, time here. These chapters, 9 through 11, are probably uh, among the deepest in the, the book itself. And by, by deep, I don't mean any more difficult to understand except in the sense that the, the information basis required uh, is more. In fact, a lot of times when we say something is, is deep or difficult, it's really not because we're not smart enough to get it or that somebody else maybe that gets it is smarter than you are. It becomes deep or difficult many times simply because that there is a large body of information that is involved in understanding uh, that concept and therefore the the more information that you become acquainted with, uh, the less difficult it becomes. It's like you've seen the game. Uh, they used to have one on TV some years back where you have a picture that's broke up into a number of parts, and then individuals, by answering, answering questions, they would begin to fill in parts of the picture, and then the first person who could guess who it was won the game. Have you ever seen that type thing? And so you, at first, you see just two or three things, and man, it, it's very complicated. And then all of a sudden, you begin to have four or five ideas as to who it might be. And then all of a sudden, you say, well, it is a man or a woman. 
and they are older or younger, and then it gets to the point where you see who it, who it is. And so the, the difficulty was not that it was difficult to understand that picture, but it was difficult because you were operating on insufficient information, and the more your information level grew, uh, the less the difficulty factor. Uh, Paul explains this in Ephesians 3 with the gospel. And when he speaks of the, uh, the gospel and the difficulty factor and refers to it as a mystery uh, in the Old Testament that's now been revealed, it, it wasn't a mystery uh, because that God was given us something too difficult to understand. It was a mystery because we didn't have all the information. And, and the New Testament simply gives us enough information that we can go back to the Old Testament and we can fill in the blanks. And as a result of doing that, the mystery evaporates and, and we can see it. And this is true, I believe, within, in not only with religious matters, or I should say with religious matters, as well as, as secular. Uh, a lot of things are not as complicated as, as we think they are is if we continue to build our information basis on that very thing. And that's why that all of us uh, you're robbing yourself if you're not already in the process of studying the Bible on a regular basis. And I mean really studying it, reading all the various translations, uh, reading various commentaries, uh, keeping up with the archaeological discoveries because they are constantly coming out with new information, uh, maybe about the language structure, the culture, the habits of the people, uh, their method of expression uh, that allows us to read the same words and yet sometimes read it with a little better understanding. After all, the book was completed 2,000 years ago in another language and in another culture. These couple of chapters here are important, uh, not from the standpoint that any of us are going to uh, lose or save our soul based on the perfect understanding of this, but I think it's important, first of all, it, there's a deep appreciation that we can have for the wisdom of God it can increase your belief in the fact that this material was inspired uh, by God as we begin to look into it and, and derive a, a better understanding. Also, it's material that is, is being mistaught uh, in the uh, religious world today. And we alluded in one of the studies to the fact that the nation of Israel today really stands on a misunderstanding of uh, Christians uh, relative to um, the situation with Israel. Uh, Israel's three million Jews over there. We've got more than that in the United States uh, and more than that in Russia. And that little country stands and there's constant fighting and argument and hatred and bitterness and terrorism because of what's happening over there. But all of it goes back to 1947 when the U.S. and Britain simply <coughs> took uh, that land away from the Palestinians. Just literally took it away from them and said this belongs to the Jews and we're going to give it to them. And so we just took it away from them. Uh, and the Jews had been kicked out way back in 70 AD when Rome defeated them and destroyed their city and destroyed their temple and scattered the Jews. And then the Muslims uh, come in and dominated and controlled that area. And we come along and what we did is comparable to somebody today coming to us and, and saying, hey, who was here first anyway? Who was in Tennessee first? <laughs> it's right. Uh, the Cherokees weren't the uh, dominant ones in, uh, in here. And they say, listen, uh, Alba, I'm going to take your property 
your house, and Paul, I'm going to take yours, and, and we're going to take all that and give it back to the Cherokees. That's, it, it's their land. They were here first. We had no right to come in and take. Well, did we come in and take this land before, sir? Did we not? With that. But still, you'd have a hard time just giving that up, wouldn't you? And, and, and saying it's no longer yours. Go to Oklahoma, and we're going to put the Cherokees here. Well, that's what happened. We did that to the Palestinians. And it was because of this concept uh, in the mind of, of believers that, uh, for example, the president of the time was Harry Truman. And Harry Truman definitely had been influenced by those concepts. I mentioned Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, both believed this concept that the fleshly Israel is God's chosen people and that eventually the Lord is going to come back and straighten this mess out and some sort of veil will be lifted over their, off of their eyes and the Jews will see. But, you know, something's just keeping them from seeing the truth now. But they're still a, a special people. And as a result of that kind of belief and through a lot of lobbying by the Jews that are over here that play on that kind of belief, and by the way, the reason the Jews are having more problems now in our country getting sympathy towards Israel is that Christians are becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of population in our country. And, and, as, and as the secular humanist becomes a larger percent, they are going to look more and more as to what is fair in that particular area, and there may be a change uh, and some problems. So I'm saying this whole area of our relationship with Israel and the Mideast and all uh, stems from whether or not people believe that fleshly Israel and the Jews are still today God's special people in some sense. Okay, beginning with the ninth chapter, we, we can't hit all of this on the time, and so we, and we'll have to go quickly through it. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off in Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not by works, but by him that calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Before either one of them born, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. By the way, in the Bible, how is the word hate used, the meaning of the word? Esteem less. Like when he says, except you hate your mother and father, uh, you cannot be thy disciple. And so what he's really saying, it's not that I despise, I can't stand Esau, but I, before they were born, I esteemed Jacob above Esau. And there, there was a reason for that. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? 
Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy in whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion in whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my own power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes, some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? What are you saying now? Here is natural Israel, most of whom have rejected Christ, right? Only a small amount. But all the apostles are Jews, aren't they? Paul's going to wind up saying, I'm a Jew. Tribe of Benjamin, etc., Pharisee, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, I'm a Jew. Israel was hardened. That's not the first time God's ever done that. God hardened the heart to Pharaoh. Well, God just hardens people and has mercy on some. Is God being fair? Is he being just? Can we challenge God on this issue? Or are we trying to challenge him when in reality we don't understand what he's actually doing? Well, first of all, knowing what we know about the Jews that that rejected Christ and those that accepted, is there anything in those two ideas that would let us know that there was nothing mystical or mysterious about the heart of some that kept them from believing the gospel? What would be the case if there was some literal veil over the mind or the eyes of the Jews so that they simply couldn't understand the good news and could not understand Jesus as the Messiah. What would have been the case? No Jew would have responded. Pardon? No Jew. Right. The very fact that some Jews did is evidence that they could, that it was a matter of choice, right? And that Paul, a man, he started out stubborn as a mule and very hard-headed in his, in his background, but he, he winds up a believer and a witness of the resurrected Christ and a, and a messenger to the Gentiles. So Paul is going to use as an argument the very fact that he himself was a Jew and saw it, and that there was these Jews that did, that, that there was nothing there to keep them if they were hardened. It was their fault. Because of the way they responded to the gospel. Two sermons. Pentecost preached to Jews, how many baptized? 3,000. Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches to Jews, how many baptized? None that we know of. They stoned him to death. 
One group was pricked in their heart and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? The other was cut to their heart and, and took out after him. Same basic message. Each way they got condemned for crucifying their Messiah. Each way they had the Old Testament prophecies presented to them. Two different responses to the same message among Jewish people. Okay, now, he says, I hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, and, and God actually uses these hard hearts sometimes to accomplish his will. So he says, I hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, how do we hold Pharaoh accountable? If God hardened his heart, was he really that terrible? Did God harden his heart in some way? Flip over here to Exodus, the seventh chapter, and we can just gleam a few verses to see what happened. Exodus, the seventh chapter, because Paul's using this as an example of God hardening hearts. He's speaking to Moses. He says in verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders, he will not listen to you. So I multiply the miracles, I'll harden his heart. Well, what are you doing? God is, and you can see Paul anticipates that question. You're, you're giving him miracles to cause him to believe, and on the other hand, you're hardening his heart. What are you, playing games? Is that fair? Well, Paul's dealing with that. Well, let's read further. Uh, we continue on through the seventh chapter. And we come to the various plagues, and we get into the 8th chapter, and we see the plague of the frogs. And then we come down to verse 9, it says, Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and the people and your houses to be rid of the frogs. In other words, he doesn't want them to think that the frogs left as a coincidence. He wants them to know that God's going to get rid of them. So Pharaoh, you set the time. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it'll be as you say so that you may know there's no one like the Lord our God. In other words, I don't want you to think it's a coincidence. We all know that eventually they're going to leave. Give me a time, Pharaoh. Tomorrow, okay, it's going to be just like you say. You're going to know that God brought this about. This is no freak accident. Moses replied to be as you say, so that you may know that there's no one like the Lord God. The frogs will leave you and the houses and your officials and your people, and they will remain in the now. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried to the Lord, about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. The Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards. They were piled up. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses, just as the Lord had said. Okay, let's continue on. Come over here to, uh, let's see, would be a good point out of here. Uh, in verse... Uh, uh, verse 33 of uh, chapter 9. Then Moses left Pharaoh, and he went out of the city, and he spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and the hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and thunder stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard. As you go through there, you find out that you have used interchangeably God hardened his heart, Pharaoh sinned, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, if you'll notice, each time Pharaoh hardens his heart, what has happened? The plague has been... Have you ever known uh, an individual man? I know any preacher that's preached for any length of time has experienced this time and time again. 
Here is somebody that's, you know, never really had any time for the Lord. But he's sick and in the hospital, maybe scared. And so you go visit him, and he's very congenial. He wants you to have prayer with him, and he's concerned. And he's telling you that, man, when I get out of here, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to get my life right with God. And he gets well. Sometimes he does just that. What happens? Other times, he goes right smack dab in the world because he's no longer afraid. One time I visited a guy here, Barbara knows him, Kenneth Maynard. Probably shouldn't have said that because it's on tape. Two weeks or three weeks, I visited that guy every day in the hospital, took his mom and dad. He had been a real scoundrel. I mean, he had cussed and drank and fornicated and, and done a lot of things. Got shot in an accident. I visited him every day in the hospital, took his parents every single solitary day, he said, man, if I get out of here, I'm going to get my life right with the Lord. I want to be baptized. Well, they, when they sent him home, he's still all patched up, still still not right, still scared. But man, I couldn't get him to the baptistry fast enough. For him, that is. Couldn't get him there fast enough. He goes ahead and he heals and he mends. And all during this process, I've continued to come and study the Bible with him. I'm, you know, during visiting every day. And then I find out he's telling his, his mom and dad, and by the way, he's, uh, he's up in his early 30s, I wish that preacher would leave me alone. I'm tired of that nonsense. I don't want to hear any of that. The only reason I was baptized is because I thought I was going to die. Well, I didn't bother him anymore, and I let him know that, you know, that I wouldn't bother him anymore. I also let him know he just got wet. You know, I didn't know his heart, but God did. Well, we all have that to various degrees, right? You may have had members in your family that, you know, put God in the closet. Trouble comes along, you get God out of the closet. We want to pray and everything. You get better off, stick God in the closet again. Okay, what we see in Pharaoh is, Moses would call down these plagues. First, it make old Pharaoh so mad he couldn't stand it. But then, after all, <laughs> this is pretty painful. It's pretty unpleasant. And so he would give in and say, hey, Moses, man, uh, I, I just give in. You win. Uh, call it off. Pray to your God. Moses says, now, Pharaoh, I want you to know it's our God that's doing this. And so Pharaoh would call the shots. Oh, Pharaoh would get out there. No frogs, no locusts, no whatever. And, and then he's thinking, hey, maybe this was just a coincidence. I've been tricked. I'm not going to give in on this. And old Pharaoh would get to thinking and thinking, and he'd get mad, and he'd harden his heart. Did God harden his heart? Yes. What God did made Pharaoh mad. Just like sometimes if we say something that makes another person mad, and I can express it and say, Mark made Mark mad. Or I can say Mark got mad. I can say it either way I want to. That is what happened with Pharaoh. Let me give you another quick example. I won't read it because of the time that you read it. Go back and read 1 Samuel 16 and then read 17 and 18 and look at Saul. <coughs> When Saul was rejected from being king of Israel, remember you read it said an evil spirit from God came on Saul. Well, is this fair? That, that God's going to hold Saul accountable when God sent an evil spirit on Saul? But that happened. That's what they said. An evil spirit came on Saul. But you go back and you read it. And that evil spirit didn't come on Saul until God rejected him as being king. And Samuel said, Saul, you've been rejected. Still didn't come. But he got to thinking. And he had a guy by the name of David that was rising in the ranks. He gets to thinking, and he's real, he, he becomes paranoid. 
Because God said, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to somebody else. Well, then you see, he would, he would get to thinking, and then an evil spirit from the Lord would come on him. And they'd say, and, and man, he'd be in a terrible mood. And the people would say, an evil spirit from God has come on him. Well, they said, what are we going to do about this? Hey, I, there's a young guy out there that plays a harp. David isn't just good with a, with a slingshot. He's good with a harp. Get him to play the harp, an evil spirit to go away. So David comes and he plays the harp. What happens? Strange evil spirit. He's scared of hearts. You know, he runs off. So the evil spirit, it says, after he heard David playing the harp, he would feel better. We would say it soothed his nerves. So this happened several times. But then he's walking one day and he's paranoid. He's wondering who's going to try to replace him as king. And he hears these young ladies singing, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. And he says, hey, what can that man have but the kingdom? He's the one that's going to try to take the kingdom away. So the next time an evil spirit comes on Saul, they call David to play the harp. You know what Saul does? Picks up his spear and tries to pin him to the wall. Why didn't the harp drive that spirit away? The evil spirit that God gave Saul, God did something that Saul didn't like. And it made him suspicious, paranoid, everything but repentful. And the end result was he acted in a certain way and, and these people would say an evil spirit from God has come on him. But as you read the story and look carefully, you can see it's like Pharaoh. Saul is infuriated at what God is doing. And so in that sense, God hardened his heart. Amos 3, 6, shall evil come on a city and God not have caused it? God permitted. Didn't Jesus say what he was going to do to Jerusalem? Well, did God cause that or did God permit it and did Israel suffer the natural consequence of their sin? I mean, did God speak to the Roman general and say, uh, Titus, it's time for you to get your army and, and go in? Or did Israel bring that on themselves? So, when you were reading through here, Paul is talking about God's dealing with man all through the centuries. And people respond in different ways. God has mercy on some and his wrath towards others. But who does God have mercy on? People that respond in a right way to God's love. Why did God esteem Jacob over Esau? When we read the lives of Jacob and Esau, I mean, you ladies, who would you rather be married to, Jacob or Esau? Big difference. And though Jacob was, wasn't perfect, but man, there was a big difference. Which one loved the Lord the most? Which one of them was, was the most humble in heart? Well, which one of them prayed to God and said, God, when I came over here, I just didn't have anything except my staff, and I've got everything, and I know you've given it to me. It's from you. And God, I promise you that 10% of everything I get or ever have belongs to you. Continue to be with me. You don't hear anything like that coming from Esau. God, with his perfect foreknowledge, knew their hearts and therefore esteemed. And so in the same way, God has known all the time who true Israel was and who fleshly Israel was. And what Paul is going to say here, fleshly Israel is a nation of people that God chose to prepare the world for the Messiah. Now from within fleshly Israel, 
There were always these people like David and the apostles and Paul and John the Baptist, etc., who actually grew up and learned to love God and have a spiritual Israel. Also among the Gentiles who didn't have the law, there were always those individuals who were seeking truth, who tried to submit to their conscience, and who didn't identify, who hungered and thirst after righteousness. That was spiritual Israel. And true Israel will be those people, Jew and Gentile, who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And God in his wisdom is going to bring this all together in Christ Jesus so there's neither Jew or Gentile. And we realize that spiritually speaking, the true seed of Abraham is those that have faith like Abraham has. So all through here now, he's going to talk about the majority of fleshly Israel's unbelief in the way that they responded to God, but it was their choice. They didn't have to be that way. All the time that some were unbelieving, there were those that believed and responded to God. He gives an example in that same context of uh, the day of uh, trying to think of the prophet's name. Thought he was all Elijah. Remember what Elijah did? Did he feel he had a lot of company among the Israelites who loved God? It looked so bleak to him that he went off to a cave by himself and God comes to him and says, Elijah, what in the world are you doing here? He said, Lord, I'm the only one that even cares about you. He was so disgusted and so fed up. In other words, what Paul is showing there that most of fleshly Israel has always walked contrary to the wishes of God. And he says, even your great prophet Elijah got so disturbed that he went off by himself and thought he was the only one. And God said, I've got 7,000 out there, Elijah. You get up and get busy. You're not alone. You're in the minority. But I've got more out there to believe. And then Paul will say, God has always had that remnant. Isaiah speaks a lot of that remnant. That remnant is that smallest percentage who would walk with God. And that remnant has always been among the Gentiles. And the most important thing is not where our lineage goes back to, but where our heart reaches out to. David was a man after God's own heart. That's what made him right, not his tracing his lineage back to Abraham. Okay, verse, cha verse chapter 10 now. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel, the Israelites that they may be saved. I can testify about them that they are zealous for God but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. You know, we have used this passage before. Uh, sometimes in looking at individuals who maybe sincerely believed in Jesus and, and they were wrong on some particular point, and we said, well, I don't care how much they believe or how sincere they are or how zealous they, they are. It, it says right here, if their zeal is not based on knowledge, they're, they're <coughs> condemned. And then we say we're saved because we do this right, do this right, and they don't. What was the, what was the difference here between the Israelites that were saved and those that were not? What was the knowledge that the one had that was saved and the lack of knowledge that the other one operated on. Jesus Christ. 
The proper knowledge was the fact that I am not saved by keeping laws. I just simply fall short. That was, and that, that God's righteousness is imputed to me based on my faith. The zealous Jew that was lost is one that refused to accept that spiritually I am a poverty case. Spiritually I am a loser. I just simply come up short. I don't perfectly keep the law. I'm simply a loser in life. And my only hope is by trusting in the Messiah. And so these people that thought, I'm going to be saved because I do this and I do this and I do that. And, and we're like, remember the, the Pharisee that prayed, Lord, I'm not like that fellow over there. wrong sign on the door. Not like him. He only does it once a month. Do it every week. Not like him. And the other poor fellow beat his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he said, I tell you, that man went home justified. By the way, I partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week and will to the day I die. That's not the point. The point is, I don't do it with the attitude that God is going to save me because I've taken the Lord's Supper. Or He's going to save me because I happen to be singing right. Or He's going to save me because I'm in a particular building. I do these things because I love God. And because I love God, I study His Word. And obviously, if you love somebody, you want to please them. And so I want to do what's right to the best of my understanding. But it's not with the idea that I'm saved because of that. I know, like Paul is saying right here, that I'm not saved based on my merit. And it is hypocrisy for me to pull a few little simple things out that anybody can do if they understand it and base salvation on it, whether it's circumcision, the Sabbath day, 10%, or whatever it is. So since they did not know, the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone that believes. Okay, then he goes ahead and talks about Moses and the statements he made about the law, and that those that those that lived, those that thought they could be justified by the law, that they would have to keep the law in order to have their justification. Okay, eleventh chapter. I ask them. Did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself. A descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture in the passage says about Elijah? We've already mentioned that. Verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace it's no longer by works. If it were by grace... If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. But the elect did. The others were hardened, as it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they could not see, ears that they could not hear. To this very day, what happened? Did God say, hey, I'm going to fix your mind so that you can't understand it and then condemn you? Because you didn't. Or is it the fact that the acknowledgement that they were sinners 
and they were not good enough, and they needed a sacrifice for their sins, and they didn't stand justified with their merit. Is it was that so much for their pride that they weren't willing to accept, and so the Messiah became a stumbling block to them? And so God gave them that in the sense that what God did aggravated these people, made them mad, hardened their heart, and that was the response to it. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. All right, now he goes to speak of the engrafted branches being the Gentiles. Come on down to verse 20. Granted, speaking to the Jews, they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fail, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And notice now, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in again. God is able to graft them in again. But what is he saying there? Who's, who was keeping these fleshly Jews from being saved? Their own unbelief. And at any time they decide to believe, I mean, some fleshly Jew in the world today doesn't have to wait for Jesus to come or anything else to come. By the way, we all realize that there are Jews converted to Christ every day. When I was in the Northeast, I used to get a publication called Jews for Jesus and edited entirely by Jews. The, the publication was great. It constantly dealt in the prophecies of the Old Testament and Jesus being the fulfillment of it, and they were constantly trying to reach other Jews. But every single solitary day, there's Jews uh, being converted to Christ. So there's nothing there. The, the stumbling block was because of their attitude, and that's why it was a stumbling block to them. If they do not persist in unbelief, God is able to grab them in again. Verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part until the number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Then all Israel is Jew and Gentile. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, their enemies on your account. But as for the election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who are one at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he will have mercy on them all. All the depths and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So Israel, true Israel, is Jew and Gentile, composed of all who respond. And at any time from that time to this time and however the future goes, any Jew alive can respond to the gospel. 
we stand there by faith and we can get up and walk out. All we have to do is remove our faith in Jesus. It's always our choice, just as it was the choice of the Jew. 15 till. Okay, any um, response? Any comment? So you're saying when it says all Israel there, that means Gentiles and Israelites. In other words, spiritual Israel. Right, spiritual Israel. That uh, true Israel really was always spiritual Israel. Even among the Jews, it was that remnant that was really true Israel. And it's just like um, an example I heard once, Mark, that I thought was good, speaking of our country. All of us are American citizens here, and in everybody in this, this, most in our country, from a fleshly standpoint, we're born in this country, we have our citizenship. But then among us, those of us that are fleshly citizens, there are those of us who really love our country, who believe in our Constitution, and we don't need a policeman to make us keep the laws of the land. We believe the laws are, are good. And, and we want to respect the laws and, and thing, and we believe in our freedom and our democracy. But also among us, there have always been those that would try to subvert uh, our freedom. There, there have always been various groups that have tried to take over. Uh, there are those people that the only, you know in your own county, don't you have people that the only reason they obey the law is because of the policemen? We all know that, I, I don't want to live in my community if you know anything about Grundy County. You don't want to live in my community without a sheriff and some deputies up there. And I know that's true in other places, too. We get a lot of publicity, but I, I think it's true everyplace else, too. But there are some people that I know that the only reason they're not coming in my house and taking what I've got is that they're scared of the police. That's the only reason they're not there. There are other people that would never come in there and take anything if there's no policeman. And so there was fleshly Israel that really simply were born into that. They were circumcised. They were in this relationship. And if you read like close to the Old Testament, most of the time they broke the Sabbath day. They committed idolatry. They got caught up in all the various sins of the people. Uh, they intermarried among the, the pagans and disobeyed God. That was really the majority of Israel. But God was using that nation to prepare the world for Christ. And the Messiah was going to come through it. But spiritual Israel was always a remnant and then eventually, in the mind of God, he knew the day would come when he would reach out to the Gentiles and true Israel would be the spiritual Gentile and the spiritual Jew, people that were hungering and thirsting uh, after righteousness. So you're saying that, that we can be a vessel of honor or a vessel of wrath, but that is our choice. Our choice. But, but God foreknows, therefore... He can use us, but he doesn't interfere in any way. He just, he's right. God, so he knows. Right. And through his foreknowledge, he wants things out together for those that do love him. Right. In Jeremiah 1, 5, he says, Jeremiah, before you were even born, I set you apart to be a prophet to the nations. Before Jacob and Esau were even born, he already know, knew who the best one was. Paul said in Galatians 1, I believe, verse 15, that he had been set apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, in a passage we're going to look at in the next part, uh, the, the final one, uh, God causes all things to work together for those he loves, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become heirs of eternal life. That right, uh, everybody has choice, but God has perfect knowledge. And, and because of that perfect knowledge, 
No matter what we choose, God will always work his will out for the good of those he knows love him. And they'll always come out, they'll always come out on top in the final analysis. I think sometimes it gets hard for people to understand the concept because they think, well, if God already knows how I'm going to be, then what can I do about it? But that's just not no. accurate. You can do anything you want to with it. God just knows no. what no. you're going to do. We do it in a finite level. We, we can look at a person that's drinking and say he's going to destroy himself or doing drugs or something like that. But yet that, even because we have that foreknowledge that it's going to lead to that, it doesn't mean they still, they've got choice. You know, we, we may know them well enough to say that, hey, I just, I will really be surprised if that person uh, changes. But God knows them perfectly. Uh, we may get it 80% of the time, God will get it 100% of the time. Anything else? I'm going to be turning your Bibles over to the 8th chapter of Romans. 8th chapter of Romans. First, I'm going to take a few moments to thank you for inviting Barbara and I to come and be with you during this. I thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, it's, uh, so far as the classes are concerned, that in some ways I have a feeling about this kind of thing, the way that I used to when I was younger and playing sports. I used to really enjoy sports, uh, especially basketball. And I would play till I was absolutely exhausted day in and day out, but I enjoyed every minute of it. And I wouldn't have did it if I didn't. And activities like this, on the one hand, you come for enjoyment, and on the other hand, it can be very draining uh, in every way, and yet you enjoy every minute of it. And that's the way I honestly feel, um, Barbara and I feel the way about the study we have in our house, uh, that it can be very draining, uh, you can wear yourself out for the Lord just as well as you can ball or anything else, and enjoy every minute of the process. Uh, I appreciate all of the ladies for the work you've done and the cooking, the meals have been exceptionally good. And I know that some of you have really worked all the time, that uh, in fact many times the ladies do most of the work where everybody's having a good time and these kind of things. I really appreciate Larry, and all of you guys should, and I'm sure that you do. I've been in his situation before where you're in the process of managing and organizing and trying to make sure that everything goes smooth and everybody else has a good time. And sometimes it's very difficult to do that and at the same time have a good time yourself. It's been, he'll probably feel a relief when he goes back to work on Monday after being over this and managing everything all the way through. But thanks to each of you, I've enjoyed being here. Another thing I really appreciate on you that uh, I've commented several times, even when I was down at Kingston before, in some ways you're a very unusual and unique congregation. Uh, we have studied some things in going through Romans that I guess I would have got shot in, in some places for some of the things that we've observed. And I really appreciate your attitude and your openness and your willing to, to sit down and to look at the, the book itself and to examine it. Uh, you may have heard some talk about potential division in Nashville when you got the Jubilee group and the other group, etc. Uh, the real problem in the body of Christ today is, is not uh, differences uh, of opinion on, on various type things. Uh, those things have always been and they always will be. As long as human beings are finite 
And as long as human beings grow and develop and acquire information over a period of time, we will always be learning more and other people will be starting out and, and those things will happen. The problem is an atmosphere that will not tolerate uh, differences. Uh, that, uh, that if there is any division, it'll come from that attitude. Uh, uh, that have the attitude that in the final analysis, whatever is right will win out, whatever it is. Uh, it will win out. Truth never has to be afraid of anything because uh, the more examination, the more study, the more out in the open, uh, the more truth shines. And so nobody has to put the lid on anything when it comes to truth. You want it out in the open and you want to get all the information out there and know uh, that truth in the final analysis will always win out. I chose this for the last study, even though we've skipped around and tried to get the at least a gist of the book. We have gleaned uh, uh, the book of Romans and tried to uh, concentrate on certain areas. I've saved this part for last, and of course we didn't get to a few of the chapters for lack of time, but because this, I guess, is uh, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Uh, man, there's a lot of favorite passages. But I like this because it says so much, it's almost unbelievable how much this says in so few words. And it's like I mentioned earlier in our study, it's one of those passages that we can only begin to understand as a result of a big body of information that we have coming to this. I don't believe somebody without a Christian background, without having been a student of the Bible, could read this and even begin to grasp what is, is being said there. We can... Uh, because we are, we're studied in the Bible, and we've read it and studied it for years, and we can look into it and appreciate a whole lot uh, of what Paul is saying here from a standpoint of understanding. Beginning with verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in this response? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All things work together for the good of those that love God. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he predetermined to become heirs of eternal life. Whom he Predestined, he also called those he had predetermined based on his foreknowledge, he called. And whom he called, he justified. 
If God is for us, who in the world can stand against us? If God loves us so much that he gave his own son on our behalf, who can condemn us? If God justifies us, who is he that condemns? You know, sometimes the first part of that where it says God works for the good of those that love him or causes all things to work together for the good of those that love God have been used in ways that I believe really doesn't express what he's saying there. He's not saying that as you go through life, every event that happens, that God's going to grab that event and mech it uh, for your particular good. He's talking about Christians, and he's talking about history, and he says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, so far as looking at every little event in life, look at what he says as we continue on. What shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him all for us. Uh, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Okay, now come on down. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it's written, for your sake we face death, death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. What is he saying there? Who can separate us from the love? We've said that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. He says, then who can separate us from the love of God? And then he names off a lot of very unpleasant things, doesn't he? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, can these things very indeed happen to you while God, while God is working these things out for your goods? In other words, there's nothing in that statement that says because you're a Christian, you won't get cancer. Or because you're a Christian, some car might not run over you. Or because you're a Christian, some terrible thing might not happen to you. But what he is saying is, Whatever it is that happens to you, there is absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And he also says that as we go through these things, that we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he says, you may very well get killed for your belief. You may very well be persecuted for your belief. You may very well be troubled. You may very well have all kinds of hardships. You may like, be like Paul and have whatever disease that he had that was so bad he petitioned God three times. You may be like the Lord himself who in prayer said, Lord, if possible, take this away from me. I don't want to undergo it. And yet he had to undergo it. The guarantee you have and that we have as, as believers is that whatever happens, it does not separate us from the love of God 
and that God gave His Son for us, and that in the final analysis, all things work together for the good of those that love God. You know, it's interesting when you look at this and consider who Paul is writing to and Paul's background and the Jewish background at this time, and he is uh, summing up all of this teaching on righteousness and God making man right through Christ. And you think back through history, and you go back in Jewish history, and what if you had been a Jew living in the days of Nebuchadnezzar? Would you think you might have had a hard time of figuring out what in the world God was, was doing? I mean, with this pagan coming into your city and, and conquering you and carrying you into captivity, captivity and destroying your temple and burning it down, and all the time you're thinking, how can this happen? We are the, we are the people of God. And yet, in that captivity, they were scattered throughout the known world of that day. And in that captivity, and they're being scattered, the Jews built synagogues all over the known world. And as they built these synagogues all over the known world, and they began to spread, as their captors spread them, every place the Jew went, he took the knowledge of the Messiah that was coming. There was no place the Jew went but he made everybody aware of the fact that there was a Messiah coming and there was going to be truth and righteousness that resulted. Later on, this empire will be overthrown and we see the Medo-Persians come on the scene and we set them, uh, have them set forth a law basis for the pagan world that the pagan world had never had before. All they'd had Hammurabi's code of law in a small sense, but it was really the Medo-Persians that brought structured law to the entire civilized world of that day and helped set the stage for the spreading of the gospel. And then after that, there was Alexander the Great that comes along and he conquers and he spreads the Greek culture, including the Greek language, and the New Testament will be written in the Greek language. And then Rome conquers. And by the way, what would have happened to Christianity had Rome not have conquered Israel and Israel have been a self-sufficient, free, unconquered country under a Jewish king at the time that Jesus came. You snuffed him out. Snuffed him out. The Jews did all they could. They wanted Jesus executed. Uh, they did all they could to destroy Christianity. Who protected Christianity? Rome. Uh, it's obvious they would have killed Paul in his tracks if it wasn't for Rome. And so we, we look at this, and the Jew hated the Romans. He absolutely despised him. And yet in the providence of God, God knew what he was doing. He knew that the majority of the Israelites would reject the Messiah. And so Rome will actually turn out to be the protectorate. And not only that, Rome was very tolerant towards religion. Of all the empires that have ever existed, the greatest was Rome, also the most tolerant towards other religions. Rome didn't care what you believed. And they were very tolerant. For example, Rome would not bring Jewish males into the army because they allowed the Jews to keep the Sabbath day. And, and they, they allowed the Jews to have their temple. They were very tolerant. In the same way, they would protect Christians. And so Rome did something that as we look back, we say, thank God for Rome. Thank God for Alexander the Great. Thank God for the Medo-Persian Empire. Thank God for... Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians 
and we could work our way on back, and we could get back to Joseph. And remember when Joseph had all those ugly things happen to him? And here he is, a devout person, and it seems like it's one negative thing after another that happens in his life. And then Joseph gets to be an old man, and he looks back over his life, and he says, I realize what happened now. God sent me here. You intended it for evil, but God allowed it to happen and used it for good. And so that God brought about something good, even though it was contrary to what would have been expected by those that were involved in the events themselves. Hold your place there and flip over to the second chapter of Acts. Second chapter and verse 22. And again, we're dealing with the concept of God working things for the good of those that love Him. And the concept of predestination through foreknowledge. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death and nailed him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said, I saw the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will live in hope, because you have not or will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried in his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised him to life. And we're witnesses of that fact. Notice what he says. God didn't cause them to execute Jesus. He said, you, by the hand of wicked people, killed him. So it was your choice. But God has foreknowledge. And he looks down the stream of time. And he can see that when Jesus comes, they're going to execute him. And so God says, that's fine. I'll step out of the way and let you execute him. Go ahead and kill him. But when you kill him, I'm going to bring off the biggest event that's ever happened in human history. I'm going to call him forth from the grave. And I'm going to allow that act to be a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And I'm going to let him appear before the very witnesses that saw him crucified. And so on the one hand, we see people acting of their own knowledge doing their own thing, in other words, involved in predestination is not the idea of God tampering with the thinking of anybody. But it's God with foreknowledge predetermining to do certain things because of that foreknowledge. So without doing anything to people's will, but knowing in advance what's going to happen, God predetermines to act in certain ways. And so he says, God looks down through history, 
He knows our hearts. And because He knows our hearts so perfectly, and He knows humanity so well, He is able to know in advance the things that we will do, and therefore He predetermines in advance to work things for the good of those that love God. What God does in an infinite way, you and I do in a finite way. We look at the, the stock market or something of that nature. We read information. And then based on that information, we make a prediction. And a certain percentage of the time that we're right. Or we, we look at even the playing of a football game and we evaluate the information and we make predictions and a high percentage of the time we are right. Well, what we do in a finite way, God does perfectly. He, he looks at all mankind. He looks through history. He knows what's going to happen. And so here David is a thousand years before the event. And how much David understands of this, you and I can only speculate. I honestly don't know. But David speaks of somebody that would be killed, but God would not abandon them to the grave. Their flesh would not see corruption. And for a thousand years, the Jews have had to work that passage over and try to understand what's going to happen. And then he says, you know that David couldn't be speaking about himself because you know that David died and David saw corruption and he's buried and his tomb is right out there now. But rather David was a prophet of God and he spoke of this one that would come and would be raised from the dead. So with all this information, Paul says that we can look back on all that God has accomplished. And we can say that we know, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. I think the comfort that you can get out of this as you live in a chaotic world today, and I don't know about you, but I can get real disturbed about a lot of things that are going on. When I look at our own country and I can see the crime rate going out the ceiling, I'm in public education and sometimes I think the system is going down the tubes. And that all, I wonder if we can even handle all the problems that we've got. I look at the institution of marriage in our country and I see all the things that are happening, happening there. I look at the church and I see the apathy and the lukewarmness and the, and the more concern about turning inward and protecting our own and, and less concern about evangelizing and, and reaching others that, uh, that have not been brought up with, with this information at all. And I look at people like Saddam Hussein and, and I read all this material about the nuclear weapons and all that good stuff and what's going on in Europe and, and I read about the deficit in our country and you think, what in the world can I be sure of? What is going to happen? Is this country going to stand? What are my children going to have? And it's comforting to know that our God has everything under control and that even though we have our free will and exercise our choice, our omniscient God knows everything. And that He works for the good of those that love Him. And I can read this and I can say I have no doubt in my mind that it will continue to be that all who seek will find, all that hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled, all that, that knock 
will have it open. And the same God that worked then is working now. And we can know that in the final analysis, from a spiritual standpoint, whatever suffering or persecution or anguish or death, all things work together for the good of those that love God. And we can see from the context here that the great good that he's talked about is not the kind of house that I live in or the car I drive or the prosperity of any one country. What God has under consideration and what he calls good is the salvation of our spirits. And if the collapse of our country makes us a more spiritual people, well, from God's standpoint, maybe that's great. And so I look back and I look at the history of Israel and I can see that so many times that they thought something was bad and God thought it was great because he was working out something that would be for the spiritual good of all mankind. Let's look at it again. Verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And notice now the condition there. Works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose, for those God foreknew, he also predetermined to become conformed to the likeness of his Son. Notice what God wants for those that love him. What is Christianity? To be conformed to the likeness of his Son. We spend our time arguing and fussing about so many things that are below the weightier matters of the law. And yet the end result of all God's work in us is that we will recognize that this is the way that God would have us live and God wants us in the final analysis confirmed to the likeness of His Son. The more you become like Jesus, the more we become the way God would have us be. That He might be the firstborn among many brothers and those he predetermined, he called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he glorified. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? It means that no matter what political party that you might vote for, you'll make your best choice, just like I will, and, and hope that we're right and we may be wrong. But it's good to know that beyond our finite mind, there is this omniscient creator that knows everything and will bring about his will whatever the mistakes or the shortcoming of those of us here on this earth and in the final analysis in such a way that those of us that can look into your own heart and if you can look into your heart and you can honestly say I love God then you know that all things in the final analysis will work together for your good. Let's conclude the study at this point. Is there anybody that would like to respond in any way to the lesson for this morning?